Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joshua J. You're listening to How Magicians Think, Overcoming Obstacles. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. I live in New York on 23rd Street, right across the street from the biggest blind center in the city. And what that means that as I go about my day in New York with the sights and sounds of New York City, I see in my path always people who are sightless. They're in the coffee shops I go to, and I see them in restaurants and walking in and out. Several live in my building, and I get to know some of these people. And one day when I was talking with one of my neighbors who is sightless, I realized that blind people never get to enjoy magic. It's like seeing a sunset or going to an art museum. There are just certain things that blind people never get to experience. And that really saddened me. But then I thought for a second, what would it look like if you could do magic for somebody who couldn't see? And I wrote that question down in my notebook. I immediately started to get ideas. I started to think about ways that you could perform magic for someone's mind. Over a period of about two years, I developed a trick that I now call out of sight. And it's a card trick that happens entirely in your mind. Instead of picking a card, you think of a card. And instead of taking it out and putting it back in the deck, instead you do a series of shuffles. And at the end of the trick, the person doing the shuffling and the dealing and the thinking finds their own card. But then, as a little flourish for those who can see, you turn the deck face up and there are no other cards in the deck. Every other card, aside from the one thought of, is blank. I had the great fortune to perform this trick out of sight on Penn & Teller's hit show, Fool Us. And I fooled them with this trick got the trophy, I got to go on national television and do it, and I got to close their show one night by performing that trick for their full audience in Las Vegas. I think I can say it without giving anything away, I absolutely did not do a deck switch. You did not do a deck switch? Well, then I I do know what you did do then. If you did not do a deck switch, then I think, and I, I didn't confer with Teller on this, but I think there's another way I think you fooled us. That was the way you did it. If you didn't do a deck switch. It was one of the great highlights of my professional life. And I love telling this story because 
Doing this trick gives me a particular pleasure that no other trick in my repertoire does because I can share this trick with people who can't see. And sometimes it shows I will come across somebody who can't see and I will get them to the front, get them on stage and perform this trick for them and make them the hero of this trick. This episode is all about finding magic in the unlikeliest places, how magic can help us overcome obstacles, but also how magicians have overcome obstacles with their magic. We start off by talking to the great Richard Turner, who has gone all over the world performing incredible sleight of hand with cards. Then later, I speak with Madi Gilbert, a Canadian magician who does exceptional sleight of hand despite, and I know this sounds unbelievable, an unusual situation. Here it is in Madi's words. Most people know me for being a magician without hands. I think that is the number one thing that stands out about me. We'll come back to Madi in a little bit, but first, Richard Turner. I tend to think in visuals. Some people tell me that for them, it's a sound or a smell or someone's words. But for me, I store my most important memories as out-of-body experiences. It's like I'm there looking at a camera 10 feet away, filming the other me as this happens. That's how I tend to store memories of myself, me looking at myself in whatever that memory is. I see myself in my mind's eye along with whatever is happening in the scene. And I want to share with you one of my favorite memories in magic. And it's me sitting at a table across from Richard Turner, one of the great sleight of hand artists in the world. And I've got a deck of cards in my hand, and I'm trying to show a move called a bottom deal. This is a move where it looks like you're dealing cards off the top, but secretly you're dealing them off the bottom. It comes from the cheater's repertoire, but it's also a move magicians use. It's known as one of the hardest moves to do well. But what makes this memory so unique is that as I'm doing this dealing at this kitchen table of Richard Turner, Richard Turner has his hands outstretched, and his hands are on top of mine. He is feeling me doing this move. Now, why on earth would a guy put his hands onto a magician's hands to feel what a move feels like? Well, it doesn't sound so crazy when you realize that Richard Turner is blind. Richard Turner can't see, so he is forced to watch magic by feel. And it was a very emotional day to meet one of my heroes, Richard Turner, when he invited me over to his house. He invited me to sit at his kitchen table and do magic for him. But to watch that magic, he had to feel it. I have a condition called Charles Bonnet syndrome. I'm the most extreme case of CBS on the planet. CBS is the acronym for Charles Bonnet syndrome. I live in basically the easiest way to say it is in virtual reality. In other words, I don't see what's in the back of my brain, in the back of my mind, in the back of my mind, like when you're dreaming or uh, sleeping. I see what's in the back of my mind in external space. I see it in front of me, just like you see what's in front of you. Like right now, I'm in what I call the blue spectrum, which is all different shades of blue. And then that blue is just every subconscious image you want to imagine. They're layered three-dimensionally, but they're in two-dimensional images. So there was a movie called Tron, I think it was. They kind of describe how I see it as that. The way I think most magicians, myself included, practice is we sit in front of a mirror and we do moves 
thousands of times. And then once they look good from the front, I turn slightly to the right and I get it perfect from that angle. Then I turn slightly to the left and get it perfect from that angle. And it's so complex and so difficult and takes so many hours to get right when I have the benefit of a mirror. And it just seems like the obstacles would be exponentially more difficult when you don't have that advantage. Have you picked up other strategies and other shortcuts and ways of discovering ways to get smooth and invisible with your sleight of hand? How do you know you're not flashing a move? Flashing is the magician's term, of course, for exposing a move or, or doing something so it can be perceived when it's meant to be invisible. I would have someone watch. I say, do you see any leaking? Here's what I'm doing. I'm getting ready to steal these cards out of the middle of the deck and start shuffling with them in my hand. And then I will have someone watch from different angles. And they say, yeah, from this angle here, there's a, a slight bow I can see in your hand. So then I'd have to figure out to how that particular angle did not come into play if it was a show. So a lot of times I would just uh, ask somebody to watch for me. Do you kind of visualize the move and create it in your mind and then make it real with your hands? Does it ever work that way? I will see you know, a, a two hands and the cards, but they will be geometrically engineered or created. And I will watch that move and, and practice in super slow motion and analyze every element. It's part of my breathing. It's all uh, put together in geometry. I, I'm doing a diagonal palm shift. I'm doing my own, my the Turner diagonal palm shift as we speak. And I will see in, like I said, in virtual reality, in geometrically engineered images right now. I have dozens of moves and things I've created that no one's ever seen, partly because they're so tough that I'm not satisfied with them in some of the cases. The thing is, mo most of the things that I wanted to, to create, it took in many cases, decades. I have about 150,000 hours behind a deck of cards, which is Gladwell's rule of 10,000 hours. He says, to become a true expert of master, you must devote at least 10,000 hours to your craft. And that basically breaks down to like three hours a day for 10 years. I have been working with cards for 60 years now. And for 50 of those years, I put in three to 20 hours a day seven days a week for half a century. I think it's very interesting that when people see you perform, they usually are not told by the person introducing you and you don't address that you are without sight when you're performing. So they see this unbelievable performance and then usually after or toward the end, they're clued in that you are without sight. Now, why do you make that particular decision artistically? It would be like if you had a colostomy and you're getting ready to do your show, are you going to tell people that you have a colostomy bag on? No, of course not. And so it, it never occurs to me because it's irrelevant to what I'm going to show. My job is to blow their mind beyond comprehension, do something where they don't even have a frame of reference of how the heck could what I have seen take place. You were the star of the documentary film Delt. How did that film change the way you think about magic or your career? There's a message in that film. You'll actually see clips from 30, almost 40 years ago 
where I'm interviewed on some TV show. And they get the interview after I do some stuff, he'll say, tell them about your vision. And all of a sudden, the people tell me my face turns pissed. I'm going, I'm not here to talk about my vision because I didn't want to be known as pretty good for a blind guy or handicap makes good. I didn't want that theme. I wanted my work to stand on its own, on its own merit and be compared to everybody out there on their full level where I'm working within my constraints. So I went from a independent disabled person to a dependent disabled person. And my wife, she has a statement that I think is very profound. She says, you can't conquer what you're not willing to confront. I'll say that again. You can't conquer what you're not willing to confront. And I did not want to confront the fact that I now had to depend on others for certain things, getting around. I kept splitting my head open, running into this, running into that. And my wife was afraid I was going to damage some of our valuable antiques. <laughs> but the point is, I finally had to accept the fact that I needed assistance. And when I accepted that I wasn't Superman, and I accepted that help, it set me free. And we all have times in our lives when we need help from others. And when, when you accept that, you, you can move on with your life. And that's what kind of the theme was in Delt is that when I finally accepted the fact I needed help from others, it just basically set me free. In October 2015, Abby Albani was rehearsing for her Luxembourg Imaginarium show with her partner, David Goldrake. I had like this really bad, nervous feeling going on all day. And I kept chalking it up to it's just nerves, you know, we've never put the show together, it was a brand new cast, I'll be fine. Everything was going well, and we got to the end of the night, and we had to run the double levitation one more time just to nail everything down. In this illusion, she will float above the stage, above a platform, about 12 feet in the air. So from the audience, what you're seeing is I lay down on a table and I end up levitating in the air. And my partner comes up in more of like a standing position behind me. Abby tells us what happens next. I'm in my costume. We're running the dance portion of it before going on the actual illusion. I lay down on the table. I'm feeling really nervous. I don't know why, because David and I had run that illusion so many times. We performed it in another show. So I went up and everything felt normal. And then all of a sudden, David came up behind me. And as soon as he got to the top of the illusion, I felt like this really big jerk. And all of a sudden, everything went black. And the next thing I know, I'm waking up on the stage. I can't see, I can't hear, I couldn't breathe. I was gasping for air. And it was just like, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Oh my God, I am just 
wincing hearing this. So, of course, what happened was you fell. There was a malfunction with the apparatus. You fell, is it correct to say, about 10, 12 feet? Yep. And you fell onto the table base beneath you or you fell on the stage floor? Onto the stage, it kicked me off and I fell in front of it. And the weird thing was, is I felt like my body was backwards from the way that I was actually laying. It was the weirdest feeling in the entire world. So I broke the C3 and C4 vertebra in my neck and that controls everything from the diaphragm down. Uh, Luxembourg told David that basically what we were looking at was really severe and it might just end up being like this forever. So I ended up in Germany because they had a hospital geared towards spinal cord injuries. I honestly, for, I don't even know the duration of time because I kind of lost sense of time for a while. But in the beginning, I didn't even know that I was paralyzed while I was in ICU. And then... Once I had come out of ICU and I was more with it, they were taking me off a lot of the meds and I was getting into physical therapy and everything like that. I think it was like one day I felt like, okay, things are going to be all right. Like I'll figure this out. And then I had my days where I just wanted to give up and like, what's the point? Abby spent eight months in the hospital, not knowing if her paralysis was permanent until one day, something changed. It was three months when I finally moved my big toe. That was the first mark of something's happening, my body's coming back. And I think it was after that moment where I had more hope because there, I was seeing progress, like there was something. Because before that, there was no movement. And now that I had that movement, it pushed me to work even harder because I knew that it was possible. I was on an event with you on a Las Vegas stage for Magic Live in which you started and gave a talk from a chair and then you stood up and you walked across the stage. And I mean, I don't think there was a dry eye in the house. I don't think anybody's ever forgotten it. But I'm curious as to how you got from probably paralyzed forever to walking across a Las Vegas stage. I worked so hard in that hospital. I was in therapy probably three, four hours a day doing everything, swimming, PT, OT, everything that I could do horseback riding. They had us doing everything. It was incredible. After I got out of the hospital, it was no different. I have just constantly been in physical therapy and not willing to stop until, you know, I feel that I'm good and ready to not continue anymore. And I'm still not at that point. Like, I feel like I'll always be doing some kind of physical therapy to stay strong. Abby's body is healing, but when I ask Abby if she's returning to magic, she's not sure. She says her mind just isn't ready yet. I don't know that I have the desire to return back to magic. I think there's just too much emotion connected to it that I don't know that I can separate. 
If I see an illusion like that, hits me in my heart and I'm like, oh, like right back to where I was. But overall, I still love watching magic. I think it's incredible. But for me, I don't know that it's where I want to go back to. But performing in general, I love. Despite setbacks, Abby's feeling optimistic about her future. Back in March, I had gotten COVID. So it's been since March a really tough year for me. Um, physically, things had been going pretty well. I was gaining a lot of independence. I still need a lot of help, but a, a lot stronger than I have been in a long time. I would love to get back into doing some kind of creative outlet, whether it's fashion and modeling or getting back into acting. I haven't given up on those things. I just need to put my focus on my health just because it kind of runs my life. The person I want to introduce to you now is Madi Gilbert. And Madi is one of my most interesting friends. He's a deep thinker about magic. We talk sometimes about the creation of tricks and, and his original magic. But Madi was born without arms or legs. His appendages have some webbing on them, and this allows him to grip cards, but it's not in the way that a typical magician would do it. Needless to say, this creates a huge obstacle for him. But what's so inspiring is it didn't stop him at all. On the contrary, it pushed him to go further. And Marty Gilbert has developed his own vocabulary of slights because he can't use the slights that I use or other magicians might use. And his shows are nothing short of spectacular. Here's what Madi had to share with us about how magic intersects with his unique situation. When my mom was pregnant with me, there was some sort of complication. She wasn't even aware of it, to be honest. But what happens in those moments is the baby's cut off from the, the mother in the womb, and it doesn't have the important things that it needs to live. The the oxygen and the blood and all the nutrients. So in most cases, the baby will die at that point. But me, instead of dying, my little body kept all the important stuff for my heart and for my brain. And it made the decision to stop developing my my limbs to a certain level uh, so that I could have all those important stuff to survive. Uh, that's why I, I did not develop full hands and full fingers. When I was growing up, I wanted to do magic because it was something that I looked at other people doing and it made me feel like I could do anything. It made me feel like I had power just watching it. It's like when you watch an inspiring movie, you feel like pumped up and you want to you know, take on the world. For me, when I saw magicians, I had that very same feeling and I knew I couldn't do different stuff like David Copperfield. It's completely out of my league. I couldn't do stuff uh, like David Blaine and the other close-up magicians that I was watching. But I remember seeing Darren Brown and thinking, here's a guy who is claiming, I don't know if it's true, but he's claiming to only use his, his mouth and his brain and his memory. I have all these things. What if I learn some of that and try to turn it into performance? But I always wanted to do sleight of hand and I always wanted to do big magic as well. <laughs> When I was doing mentalism, 
it never really fulfilled me the way that I wanted to be fulfilled doing magic. All my heroes in magic did stuff that could be seen and could be touched. It wasn't just in their minds. It wasn't just in their imaginations. It was in front of them and it was real. So I wanted my magic to be like that. And I didn't know how to do sleight of hand. I didn't think I could do it. I didn't think I could learn anything, but I... I had a deck of cards and I remember on my 17th birthday, I decided that I would learn. So I waited until everybody in my house was asleep and all the lights were off. And I just sat there in the dark with the cards, just trying to figure stuff out. How can I shuffle? How can I cut? How can I lift up cards and do all these things? And in the beginning, I could not do anything Really, even the most basic shuffle took me a long, long time. As time went on, I started to understand more and more uh, how I move and how the cards move and how things work. It was a slow, gradual build from there, figuring everything out. Also, just trying to figure out how to present it to people a lot of times I'm using my body to manipulate uh, the props and also to present the props. So how do I do that in a way that's comfortable for people and make it appropriate for people and, and interactive? I have heard negative voices. It was people who cared about me trying to protect me from the world, from reality. Because in real life, things are very hard and things don't always work very easily. And sometimes you have to fail and you have to do things over and over again. And so I think a lot of times when people say these things, they're trying to protect you from uh, the pain that you'll encounter in your journey. Everybody gets discouraged. And I think it's generally because of a lack of imagination from other people. Really, people cannot imagine what you can do and so many times you'll describe that you're going to do something or that you want to do something and for whatever reason they just can't see it with the clarity that you can see it. you can see the whole thing and they can see nothing uh, but the funny thing about life is when you actually do these things then all of a sudden everybody can see it I really don't think people generally want to keep other people down I think they just have a very hard time imagining what what life can be like when you push yourself and when you have a vision and you go for it. It's interesting because we are performing card magic and we're performing different types of magic. But in terms of the stories that we're telling and the stories that we're giving people, these don't need to be a long drawn out uh, story that's scripted. A look can be a story. An image, a picture can be a story. A feeling can be a story. And these are things that we can carry for the rest of our lives. For, for me, growing up, the, the way that magicians made me feel was so powerful. I just want to be able to share that with other people in my own way. A few years ago, I was in Mexico. My friend Javier Natera runs a little convention down there and we had a gala show and I I tried something new that night. I, I had a new ending to my oil and water, which 
it, when I do it on Penn and Teller, I have everybody interlace their fingers. And for this new ending for the show, I had everybody interlace their fingers, not by themselves, but with each other. And I had, you know, these lines about how we're all separated and everything. The entire audience was just in complete silence. You could hear a pin drop. And after the show, people were telling me I felt goosebumps during that part of the show. I felt this, I felt this. It's really interesting because we have these moments that happen and sometimes they're really hard to duplicate. So I think part of magic is trying to understand why things work a certain way and then also understanding that you're not in complete control, but it's an interaction with the audience. You can't just do the same thing for every single audience. Sometimes you, you have to change what you're doing. I just want to be able to give something to people that they can carry with them for the rest of their life. Love what you do. If you love what you do, it's not work. For me, my cards are my passion. They're my pleasure. They're my pastime. They're my mistress. <laughs> it's not work. If you find what it is that you can't not do, that's when you have the thing that's going to take you somewhere. I would say if anybody ever wants to do anything, just do it. And when you succeed, everybody who ever discouraged you will all of a sudden understand it because they see it. It will be real and they'll be on your side. I hope this episode warms your heart as it has mine. And it shows us that magic can come from the unlikeliest places and from the most unlikely people. In the next episode of How Magicians Think, we're going to explore the topic of the smartest magician alive. Spoiler alert, it's Teller, the silent half of Penn and Teller, and he is a riveting interview. You'll hear all sorts of things about insights in his show, his theory of magic, all in the next episode of How Magicians Think. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app, and don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc., Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., audio up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. 
The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.